Well, amen, church. May the Lord grant all of that. I invite you to take your copy of the Bible and go to Galatians chapter 2. If you are not acquainted uh, with the scriptures, it's toward the back. So you sort of find your way at the back, sort of working toward the front. Galatians chapter 2. We're several weeks into um, a study and examination of this important letter. Today we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. You may know that Scripture comes to us in a, in a whole range of different genres. Um, there's the law, there are letters like this, a wisdom literature, apocalyptic literature, which is very ripe with images. There's poetry, there's all kinds of different stylistic genres that the scripture comes to us in. But in terms of content, that is words on the page, most of the Bible is narrative. Did you know that? Most of the Bible comes to us in the form of stories. And that really is where we're in a letter, but this section is really an accounting, a revisiting of a trip that was made with Paul and two of his friends, an important trip, to Jerusalem, and it's meant to be instructive to us. I think we're going to see that as we work through it. So let's look at it together. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. The Bible says, Then, so after his visit with Cephas, after his trip to Syria and Cilicia, we saw last week, then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us 
to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I think one of the things that makes navigating relationships tricky, in fact, part of what really makes this challenging for mature people is knowing when to fight and when not to fight. And there are more than one way to get that wrong. When should we engage in dispute? And when should we, in Solomon's words, overlook an offense? It takes wisdom to know, when do I fight? When do I not fight? We've all known people who are just prone to lock horns. It just seems like they are in a low-grade kind of conflict uh, just a, a, a disputing spirit all the time. They fight all the time. They could start a fight, as they say, in an empty room, right? They could, they could find a way to dispute. They'll fight on the same side of an issue. It's raining outside. It is raining outside. I mean, just, just that kind of a, a aggravated, contentious spirit. A week ago, one of the members of the Alabama uh, basketball team, a forward, was charged with capital murder following what was described as a minor altercation. And a life was taken. So some are quick-triggered. But others are so conflict-averse that they fail to acknowledge actual problems, significant problems, and are unwilling to engage in dispute at all. Well, it takes wisdom to know when should I engage, when ought I not? It's a question requiring real wisdom. What issues are so central that we simply can't make accommodation? I think the last few years have shown us we're just not real good at that. You ask, what do we fight about? We fight about literally anything we think, feel, or read on the internet. We'll fight about anything. Well, there, the list of things that are so central that we must engage. Suppose we were to make that list of matters that simply insist upon agreement. I would say there is such a list, and I might gently add that that list may not be as long as you might think, but my point is not to fully answer the question of what belongs on that list, but to say that one thing absolutely does belong on that list. A matter that cannot be compromised absolutely must be fought for. That thing dominates our text today. The dispute that is at play in these verses is a necessary dispute. So go ahead and cement that in your mind. This is not ancillary. This is not something on the periphery. This is absolutely at the very core and heart of what it means to be a believer, which opens the door for my thesis. This, this may sound like a non sequitur. It may seem a little illogical to you. Unity is important enough to fight for. That's simple. Unity is important enough to fight for. And we see this modeled in this text. In fact, the trip to Jerusalem was motivated by a desire for unity. We see unity as an emphasis all through this text. Paul and the Jewish leaders, solidarity with the Galatian church as evidenced by his obligation to protect them. The unity within Paul's own entourage, a believing Jew and a believing Greek. 
And then concerning the poor, there was a, that suggests a kind of connectedness across classes and communities. So the issue of agreement, the issue of oneness is at the heart of this. So this might be a secondary thesis for you to consider. For the people of God, true unity rises or falls on what I'm calling gospel agreement. True unity rises or falls on gospel agreement. Now, I'm not talking about civility. I'm, not, I'm talking about actual unity. True substantive unity requires gospel agreement. That is a shared understanding of how men and women and young people are reconciled to God and brought into the family of God. True unity rises or falls on gospel agreement. By the way, this fits absolutely seamlessly with where we have been to this point in the book. Last week's text and this week's text fit symbiotically, fit very nicely. Paul defends his apostleship last week by how he received the gospel and commission, but it does kind of have a little bit of an independent feel. Now, I got this directly from the Lord. Here, he communicates a desire for harmony and agreement with the larger body of faith. Now, I mentioned we're in a narrative here. It's hard to build a tidy outline from narrative, but I want to lift some big principles here that I think will help direct us as we push our way through. These will be kind of primary heads related to that theme of gospel agreement. Number one, unity must be diligently maintained. Number two, unity requires distinguishing true family from false family. That is, it requires clarity regarding the we. Unity demands also a clear understanding of mission. It means knowing what we're about. And finally, unity involves sacrifice. Let's walk through this text together. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Then, after 14 years, I, Paul, went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. There's some discussion, all the commentators contend with this, about which of Paul's visits is in view here. We've kind of touched on this already to this point. Acts gives us four visits. He meets with Peter, stays with him a couple of weeks. We saw that in last week's text. He delivers a gift from the Gentile churches, Macedonia, Achaia, and others. Second visit. Third visit, he returns with Barnabas to Jerusalem for the council, that very important council in Acts 15 related to the very issue we're discussing here. And then the final visit when he was arrested and sent to Rome. Well, we know that this visit is after the first visit. We see in our text here, he went up again. We saw last week he had spent a couple of weeks with Cephas. We know also that it must predate the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. Otherwise, this issue is already settled. Why are we even talking about it? So it has to be somewhere between the two of them. If we accept that this trip happened 14 years after Paul's conversion, which is kind of key to the timeline, then it works that this is 
either the second trip or a trip that was so close to the third trip as to be indistinguishable. But the point is, and the timeline matters, but the content and emphasis of this meeting is central. So he comes. He comes with his buddy Barnabas. Somebody ought to name their son Barnabas. That is a great, I love that brother. Don't you, just this, his care for the people, just a kindness, just a sweet, sweet brother. Uh, he brings Barnabas and he brings Titus. That's another good name. Thinking a lot about babies. But um, <laughs> his entourage, this is an odd group. This is a strange group of folks that are coming. This whole story, we see, this is weird, we see common, commonality where you would expect to see differences. And we see division where you might anticipate agreement. It's really interesting. That's an odd coupling. So Paul, a Pharisee with a violent history, now a servant of the very people he used to vilify. Barnabas, who was a Levite of the priestly class, native of Cyprus, but well acquainted with the law, credentials of a Jew are solid, would have been very much at home within the temple complex. That's, that's Barnabas. And then there's Titus. I mean, you talk about the consummate outsider. Titus, a Greek. Zero ethnic claim to inclusion in the covenant. He was an outsider. So these three making the trip. Titus, absolute Greek, identified here as uncircumcised. He eats what he wants to eat. Uh, a devout Judaizer would limit himself to a kosher diet, no pork, no shellfish. Titus says, no, I'll have the shrimp and grits and with sausage gravy and covered in bacon. I mean, this is, he, was, he eats what he wants to eat. But here's the thing. Titus loved Jesus. So what in the world are we going to do with him? What, are we, what in the world are we... I mean, he's clearly not part of the we as we understand the we. This man loves Jesus. Well, we know this, Gentile inclusion. By the way, if you are part of our reading plan, and I hope you are, uh, this was, you couldn't miss this this week. Gentile inclusion has been God's intent from the very beginning. This isn't he got well into it and said, we, we, ought, we ought to bring them in too. No, I mean, in, in, in Genesis 12, at the very point, I mean, at the very point when the, when the rite of circumcision is given, God says, hey, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Gentile inclusion was not an afterthought. Gentile inclusion was God's intent from the very beginning. This has always, always, always been a message to the nations. And for most of us, that should be very, very good news. right? Because that, that, that impacts the majority of the people here. Well, he was confronted with a conflict. Paul always was having to deal with false teachers. The false teachers kind of had a twofold methodology. They would subvert Paul's message directly, and we saw how that was specifically was done in the Galatian church. That was adding works of the law. By the way, this is absolutely essential to understanding what we're dealing with. It was adding works of the law to the message of Christ. 
So it was not to negate, at least verbally, it was not to negate the work of Jesus. But they said, listen, to get to Christ, you must go through the door of Judaism. So you have to go through the dietary law, you have to honor the annual feast days, and you must submit to circumcision. So the two objectives of the false teachers was to undermine or subvert Paul's message, but they would also try to discredit him as a teacher, and that's what made this trip necessary. They were alleging that the apostles and Paul contradicted each other, that they were teaching separate methods of coming to, to, to Christ. Now, hopefully you know this. Let me just go ahead and state it. There is not a Jewish route to reconciliation and a Gentile route to uh, reconciliation. We are all saved the same way. But the suggestion was that Paul was out of phase with the Jerusalem leaders. So they might say, look, I, I hear what Paul's saying, but that's not what Peter's saying. I, listen, I hear his message, but if you, if you ever listen to James teach, or if you ever listen to John teach, it doesn't sound anything like what Paul is Say So as we come to this text, we're, actually, we're having to contend with this question. Really two big questions. How will they respond to Titus? And is this freedom that Paul is describing consistent with the teaching of the twelve? So those are really the, the big questions that are in view. These verses will address the question, really, is there a rift, is there a division between Paul and the twelve? Which goes to our first point, unity must be diligently maintained. It has to become a priority. Let's look at it. verse 2. Um, I went up, Paul says, I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. In order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. So verse 2, Paul went up, not because he was summoned by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. He went up because God told him to come up. In some way, through revelation, God prompted him. This is a trip that needs to be made to visit the leaders at, at Jerusalem. I went up because of a revelation, and I set before them the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles. Now, Paul had a private interview with the Jerusalem apostles, which you saw verse 9 identifies them as James, the brother of Jesus, Peter, and John. And what did he do? He set before them the gospel that I preach to the Gentiles. In other words, this is what I have been saying to Gentiles for 14 years. So you can imagine that sitting down at the table and saying, all right, all right, Pete, John, James, I want you to know that this, this would be typical of the message that I might preach in Galatia. And he just walked through the facts of the gospel, what you hear by God's grace all the time here. But there would have been, at least in the Judaizer's mind, a significant omission. Because he didn't say anything about circumcision. And he didn't say anything about pork. And he didn't say anything about the feast days. He just laid out Christ alone. 
But the simple gospel message, he laid before them the message he was preaching to the Gentiles. By the way, this is completely warranted, and I think responsible churches have done something similar throughout church history. Many of the men here, I, I have, Matt has, had to submit to a, a kind of examination. That's not, a, not out of bounds. I mean, if you're going to stand and preach, there should be some expectation. We know what you're teaching. When I went through ordination, I do position papers. What do you believe about the inspiration, authority of Scripture, man's great need, the deity of Christ, the offices the Holy Spirit, I mean, all the, the things related to gospel clarity. There's nothing out of bounds about that. So he was setting before them the message that he preached to the Gentiles. He makes an interesting point. I want to know, is my ministry vain? Is this fruitless? Now, this is tricky because if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know Paul is not particularly have any doubts about his message, right? I mean, he doesn't have any misgivings of, am I getting this exactly right? I'd say he's pretty clear. If he could say, as he said a few weeks ago, he didn't say it, I said it, but he, um, I quoted him. If he could say, as he does in the first chapter, if I or an angel, anybody, an angel preaches a different gospel than what you've heard of me, let him be anathema. That doesn't sound like a man who's kind of vacillating. Am I getting this right? Do I have this clear? No, I, I think he knows he has this clear. I think he's entirely comfortable. What motivated this? Why is he saying, I want to know if this is vain. What I've done, what I'm going to do is vain. I think what he's saying is this. I think his concern is that his ministry, his present ministry and his past ministry, could be undermined and made fruitless. Because of the influence of these Judaizers. So I'm going to get out ahead of this. I'm going to lay it before these men I trust. They will, he was confident, validate what I'm saying. So I don't want my teaching to be undermined because of this suspicion that I'm saying something different than Peter says. So, he comes with this message. Verse 2. I think, I think if Paul determined that his preaching had created a fissure in the church, which he was not in doubt about, dividing Jew from Gentile, he would have considered his work vain, but this was one unified, simple, singular message of how God reconciles erring believers, sinful believers, to himself. It's not like he's looking for validation. I don't think he's looking for a pat on the back. I don't think he's necessarily looking for them to commend his work per se. He's loving Galatia by demonstrating oneness with the 12. So he could come back right in this letter. What I'm telling you and what Peter tells you is the same as we'll see later in the text. Let's keep going. But even Titus, verse 3, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. So this is a direct frontal assault on the error of the Judaizers. He's saying, Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment 
so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. There's a lot here. Let's work through it. I think Paul's advocacy for for Titus here is going to be really, really instructive. And it's instructive principally because it is at the very heart of the gospel. And he is bringing him, I think, pretty clearly as a test case. I think we can say this parenthetically. This is not the point of the message. But I think his advocacy for Titus, which would have been provocative, bringing an uncircumcised Greek into the holy city, informs how the gospel reshapes our us-then discussions. It helps us understand divisions, artificial or otherwise. There is an us and a them in this text, but it's not centered on ethnic boundary markers, but on a distortion of the message and the bondage that comes from this. The we are those who embrace the gospel, circumcised or uncircumcised. The we are those who embrace the gospel. The they are those who amend the gospel, who monkey with the message, adding the burden of law-keeping to the message of Christ. So seeing Paul's concern for unity Across ethnicities, and this guy, the, 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 Jew, the Jewish insider, if we can use that language, the Greek outsider, there was a desire for a clear understanding of what the gospel accomplishes. It completely reshapes the way we see these discussions. By the way, we're going to see this, I think it's particularly clear in next week's text. We're entering a section of the book where the, the gospel will be applied to this question of differences. You know this, I mean, if, if you're alert at all, you don't have to look very hard to find somebody who wants to convince you of something on this subject. Podcasts, news, social media, commentators. We want to be people who view everything through the lens of Scripture. You can trust this word. Do you know that? Just go to God's word. Just, I mean, this is simple counsel. Open your Bible and build your anthropology right there. You can trust God's word. You can trust the word of God. Everything it has to say about humanity, everything it says about culture, everything it says about ethnicity. I think you look until you see a diagnosis and you keep looking until you see the gospel remedy. And I think that is evident and clear, could not be clearer in where we're going in this book. Chapter 3 is going to make it especially explicit. But as it relates to this week's text and next week's text, if you value your place in some ideological tribe more than you do the wholeness and health of Christ's body, then I can only conclude that you're thinking like the world and your allegiances are disordered. What was in view here was clarity regarding the People of God. It's vital that we see that. Well, the issue was Paul had brought in an outsider, an uncircumcised Jew, into a predominantly Jewish community with the pressing question, must he submit to circumcision? 
And you're probably asking with warrant, why is this issue specifically such a focus? Why all this talk about circumcision? We could be friends for a long, long time before this topic ever surfaces. If you're following the church's reading plan, you know this. This is so clear. How God established a nation through Abram. And we know that from that time, this rite, the rite of circumcision, this emblem, the removal of male foreskin, was an identifying mark of God's people. And then even beyond that time, a Gentile proselyte had to submit to circumcision to to enter kind of that Jewish community. Now, all that imagery was filled up in Christ. Listen, he, he, he put a cap on all of that. That's why Paul was comfortable preaching Christ alone. All of that served to ready the hearts of God's people for the message of Christ. But the Judaizers, we've already established, were insistent on that point, that you continue with these practices. They were adding a behavior, a right, a, 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 a practice to the gospel and making that central to inclusion. Does that make sense? Which I think is the emphasis of this second point. Unity requires distinguishing true family, what he calls true and false brothers, true family from false. We have to be clear on who the we is. The we are, the we is. We got to be clear on the we. Uh, We got to be clear on who are included in the family of God. And he addresses that, and it's not particularly easy. It involves some dispute. Verse 4, false brothers apparently were dispatched. We don't know from whom, but some leader, they were, they were sent there. They were dispatched to spy out. Does that sound sinister to you? It sounds creepy to me. They were sent in to spy out their freedom. They are false brothers. One translation said they are sham Christians. J.B. Phillips said, pseudo-Christians who wormed their way into our meeting. So these are not true believers, but they purported to be believers. They they were not in the family, but they identified as family. Well, Paul, Paul knew two things about them. One was, you're here to spy. We know you're spies. And number two, Your goal is bondage. Do you see that in the text? So that they could bring them back into slavery. Slavery, specifically bondage under the law. Paul was clear on this. The Christian has been set free from the law in the sense that our acceptance before God depends entirely upon God's grace in the death of Christ received by faith. If you are in, you're in on that basis and not on anything you've done. Now that that is what Paul is fighting for. That is his insistence on precision here and what made this trip necessary. Christian has been freed from bondage to the law in the sense that God saves us by grace and by grace alone. Anybody who links your admittance into the family of God to a behavior is a false teacher. 
You got to keep your eyes open for that because they're, they're not dead. They're out there. Anybody who links your inclusion in the family of God to a behavior is a false teacher. To make our acceptance dependent on our obedience is to bind a free man. It is to bring into bondage someone who the gospel has liberated. Now, for us here, the particular debate is, is somewhat irrelevant, at least in the particulars. I mean, if you profess faith, it's not likely that somebody's going to ask you, well, have you made any changes to your body? That's not, that's not a pertinent discussion in our immediate context. But adding behaviors to the gospel, that's not a dead idea. That's pertinent in every age. That impulse toward works righteousness is strong. And our, our, I'll make it personal, my ADD heart will slip right back under the law so easily. That, that impulse to feel like I'm going I'm to satisfy God through diligent devotions and vocal witness and Apparent behaviors, the, the, the expectation that I can secure God's favor in that way, I think that impulse is very much alive. Some behavior, some discipline, some practice. And I think what Paul's arguing for, it's so insistent that we see this. The church's message, Paul's message and the church's message, creates division on the basis of gospel clarity and content. I'm talking about amending, editing, trimming, augmenting. That's what distinguishes true family from false. So everything that purports to be Christian is not Christian. Everything that purports to be gospel is not gospel. Even if they use the same language, there could be an entirely different lexicon. The question is, are we reliant on Christ alone for our acceptance? And Paul said he wouldn't even yield for a moment. I'm not tipping my head. I'm not acknowledging. I'm not giving any validity to what they're saying. Would not yield for a moment. Why? Because he valued their freedom. I'll say again, to add behaviors or obedience, to make acceptance dependent on your obedience is to bind a free man. Well, Paul was bold. I mean, he walked right into the hornet's nest and he brought Titus with him. It's interesting he brought him with him. And it, it, it takes some courage on, on Titus's part. It took some courage on Paul's part. But I mean, he just walked right into the holy city with a Greek outsider who was uncircumcised. I think his presence mattered. You know this. A, a person is different than an idea. There's something about this, like, we've got to do something with this man. He doesn't eat like you, he doesn't look like you, he doesn't talk like you, but he loves Jesus like you. So what are we going to do with this man? A person's a different thing than an idea. His presence mattered. I've, I've told you this before. I, to me, this is funny. Uh, sometimes I'll be out with one of y'all, and I'll meet one of your friends who don't know me. And so in the conversation, you'll talk a little bit. And sometimes your friend 
will use language they're used to using. You know, just very vivid, colorful, <laughs> profane language. And so cussing and talking. Like, and then you'll say, this is my pastor. Ooh, well, amen. Uh, God bless you, pastor. It, that, that presence kind of, um, kind of changes things. Well, I, I think we see something not all that dissimilar here. It's possible to talk about people as though they are ideas. So Paul brings not only Barnabas, but he brings Titus with him into Jerusalem. You can see him in a room full of theologians debating the scope of the law and its place under Christ and dietary laws and rabbinic tradition, the Torah and Abraham's household and continuity of the covenants. And Paul said, well, here, this is my friend Titus. He's uncircumcised. You're just going to have to trust me on that. He is uncircumcised. Oh, well, well, hello, Titus. What are we supposed to do with you? Because I know you love the Lord. On the question of circumcision, the Judaizers are saying, we say yes. And Paul's saying, I'm saying no. And they said yes, and I'm saying no. Well, my argument is based on the Torah and Jewish tradition. Well, my argument is based on the law's purpose and Jesus' completed work. Well, I say yes. Well, I say no. I'm sure poor Titus is saying, can we talk about something else, please? But what it boiled down to was what is the basis? On what grounds can we receive this man as a true brother? And it is on the basis of Christ alone. Same with you, same with me, same with James, same with Paul, same with Peter, same with John. And on that we simply cannot yield. And that's what Paul said. Even for a moment, we did not yield on this, even momentarily, because the freedom of the Gentile people was at stake. I read this from Martin Luther, who was prone to say bold things. He said, let this be the conclusion that we will suffer our goods to be taken away and our name and our life and all that we have. But the gospel, our faith, Jesus Christ, we will never suffer to be wrested from us. And cursed be the humility which here abases and submits itself. No, rather let every Christian here be proud and spare not except he will deny Christ. Wherefore, God assisting me, my forehead shall be harder than any man's. On this point, I am glad to be seen as rebellious and obstinate. Well, that sounds Pauline, doesn't it? I am not yielding on this point, not even for a moment, because their freedom was at stake. Let's keep pressing. Verse 6, and from those who seem to be influential... What they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. Well, what does he mean by that? By, by the way, does Paul sound sassy to you here? It seems, it seems like he's got a little bit of a something in his crawl. I mean, they seemed influential. It doesn't matter to me. I, mean, I, don't, I can say what they want. So I, mean, I don't care who they are. I don't think he is throwing shade on the brothers. I don't think he's being derogatory here. I think this is more about elevating the message of the gospel. I think he's saying more about the centrality 
of the issue at play than the strength of the personalities at the table. So whether they're influential or not, it doesn't matter. What, what we're dealing with is what are we supposed to do with Titus and people like Titus? What are we supposed to do about a clear definition of the gospel? This is not about how inconsequential the disciples were, but how massive the gospel is. I mean, these guys are big. I think Paul would say, I'm concerned with something much, much bigger. And that was the issue before them. What was their response? Verse 6, I love this. They added nothing. That's, that's helpful, isn't it? They added nothing to me. So I laid it out there. This is what I'm preaching. I've been preaching it for 14 years. So I'm preaching Galatia. It's all over Asia Minor. I've been up into Europe. I'm preaching this message all over the place. And they listen to it and go, yeah, I wouldn't add anything to that. Wouldn't amend that. Wouldn't change that. Wouldn't tweak that. They added nothing to it. So if, if chapter 1 was about Paul getting his gospel directly from the Lord, chapter 2 is his... It's the fact that his gospel is precisely the same as the other apostles. They added nothing to it. it was, there was no difference. So back to our two questions we mentioned a moment ago. How will they respond to Titus? Well, they didn't require him to be circumcised. So that's clear. And is this freedom that Paul is describing consistent with what they're teaching? I think it's clear here as well. Paul's message was affirmed by the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. It was not contradicted or modified in any way. They added nothing to me. On the contrary, verse 7, you see it there. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry... To the, uns- or to the circumcised, worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. You know what that means. God, God used Peter, God used me. Same one. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that is given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship to, to Barnabas and to me that we should go to the Gentiles as they to the circumcised. So the third point, unity demands a clear understanding of mission. It means knowing what you're about. And he said, based on this commission, their agreement, their affirmation, their statement of unity, Paul left there with a clear mission. I'm going to take this message up into, by the way, if it's ever getting to Knoxville, it's got to get to Europe. Do you know that? I mean, if, it, if, it's, if it's ever getting to the new world, it's going to have to get, and, and it would, this would be the means that God would get in a little, he'd tell this one, and they'd tell this one, a church would be established, and then this church would plant another church, and before long it's up into the British Isles, and eventually it crosses the pond. This is the God's means for gospel dissemination. By the way, it's still his means. It's still his, that is why we fund people like our dear friends, Mark and, and um, Hannah Donald, uh, and Covenant Hope Church, that we see these churches established so that the gospel would continue to expand. Well, I love the language in verse 7. Uh, he, when, they, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel, 
in the same way that you might be given care over or stewardship over something valuable. I was entrusted with the gospel. Like this precious message, this glorious message, I'd been entrusted with this to the Gentiles. When they saw that I'd been entrusted in the same way that Peter had been entrusted to the circumcised, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. The, these influential, pillar-like men looked at Paul and saw grace, right? That's what it says, verse 9. And how did they respond? They gave me the right hand of fellowship. They, they recognized the legitimacy of Paul's ministry and Barnabas' ministry. Now, context is different. Audience is different. The message, precisely the same. It's essential that we see that. Context, completely different. By the way, still the case. If you have traveled internationally or visited Michigan, some of the sweetest things, I, I, we went with our, our buddy, um, Kyle Schiff years ago and visited Papua. I mean, we, we got in a dugout canoe and went 13 hours into, I mean, you couldn't even reach this place. There were no airstrips. And, and you'd get out and you'd hike for a while and then you'd come up over a ridge and there's a little church. I mean, in the middle of nowhere. And then you hear them articulate the gospel and go, well, good Lance, that's the same thing I'm, I mean, that's exactly what I'm relying on. How in the world did it ever get there? Clarity on the mission. Context, difference. Audience, different. Message, precisely the same. By the way, same here in our, our town. There, there are, there are going to be places in our city where the feel of the service is just going to be so different than ours. Their singing is going to be different than ours. The tone of their preaching is going to be different than ours. The translation they use may be different than ours. There could be all kinds of variations. And, but, but to the degree that Christ is proclaimed clearly as our only hope in life and in death, where his, his union with the Father, his divinity, his uh, righteous life, all of that, all of those essentials, remarkable agreement. So, unity must be diligently maintained. Unity requires distinguishing true family from false. Unity demands a clear understanding of mission. And finally, unity involves sacrifice. It's an interesting little addendum there, isn't it, in verse 10? Just don't forget the poor. Remember the poor. So, amen. We're giving you the right hand of the fellowship. Go right back up where you work. Keep doing what you're doing. May the Lord bless you. But as you do it, don't forget the poor. Now remember, I mean, is he saying there, just don't forget that there exist people in the world who are poor. There's more than that, right? He's saying, no, care for the poor. Now, to some who are averse to legalism, I hope you are, that sounds like something we do, isn't it? I thought he was just saying we don't add anything. Now he's saying, don't, don't forget the poor. Well, as with all obedience acts, the issue is sequence. As with every obedient act, the issue is sequence. Care for the poor and you will be accepted. No gospel. You have been accepted. Now care for the poor. 
That's the gospel. The issue is acceptance. Listen, if I push forward a behavior, don't miss this. If I push forward a behavior, even the social gospel, and ground my hope there, that is no gospel. That is exactly what we're preaching against. But if I have tasted the mercy of God, and he has been good to me, and I, I know what it is to be a broke man who was shown mercy. I cannot be unmoved when I see suffering. So following an actual change in my heart, generosity makes sense. So the, the pillars of the church at Jerusalem said, by all means, go serve the church, but don't for, forget there are people who need help. Which, by the way, if you accept my contention, this is the second um, trip to Jerusalem. I think there's reason to conclude that. At that very point, he was coming with a gift for the poor. I mean, a famine had wrecked that land. There were wars that were creating problems. There were people who needed help. He was coming with gifts from the affluent Gentiles to give to the Jewish brothers and sisters who needed help. So unity requires sacrifice. It's just a, 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 a... it's going to influence the way I see my stuff. So I got to just apply this a couple of ways. One is, I just want to call us all, as we press toward the end here, to a greater love for the people of God. I think there's no way you can read this text without seeing. It just drips with pathos. Love for the people of God. So I just want to call us to a greater love for the people of God, evidenced by a desire for gospel freedom. I mean, the encouragement to you is just to be gospel abolitionist. To have a real concern for the freedom of those around us. Evidenced by insistence on a pure gospel and then to be free and lavish. The, the language sometimes Dr. Muller uses is promiscuous with this message. Just, just, just spread this glorious message. To speak it. To treasure and value the freedom of those in bondage. Second application, you need to master the gospel. You've got to master this message. You've got, to, you've got to stare at it until you understand it forward and backward. You don't have to master every particularity of Scripture to know and follow Jesus. You can thrive as a Christian with a fairly basic understanding of end times doctrine, for instance. At least I hope that's the case. Uh, you can thrive as a Christian with some confusion on, in areas where there might be, uh, it, it, it's disputable. But you've got to know the gospel. You have got, that, that, we are a guitar with one string on this point, aren't we? Don't, don't miss this. Know the gospel. Study it. Master it. Read and reread the first three chapters of Ephesians. The first five chapters of Romans. 1 Corinthians 15, particularly those early verses, but all the way through the, revelation, the, the resurrection. Under, understand these gospel themes. Make it so clear that it just seeps out of you, that you know it so clearly. You say, Ronnie, why such insistence on sameness, on, on, on precision and agreement. Church, look here. This is the only way to God. This is the only way to God. We've got to get this right. You get this distorted, 
everything is distorted. So you must master the gospel, the simple message of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ, sacrificial in your place, filling up the wrath of God, supplying a credit of righteousness, and all who turn to him, he receives. All who come to him in contrition over their sins. You can always come to Jesus. Jesus strong and kind. You can come to him. So I just want to close out on that one point. We very often will. There is a way home. There, everybody hear this. There is mercy for anyone who will turn to Jesus. There is a path to communion with God. If you will hear the call of your Savior, you are not cut off forever. I think what we have seen and will continue to see in this book is Paul's fairly controversial proposition that there is one legitimate gospel, and that is true. There is one, there is one way to God. It is only through Christ. You must cement this in your mind that the law cannot save you. The law cannot save you. And neither will your clean living. The law can absolutely expose your need, but it cannot clean you up. It will expose your weakness, but it will not fix your need. For that, you need the gospel. And Romans 8 would tell us what the law could not do. What the law could not do weaken through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in those who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So this story began in Jerusalem. Let's get it to Knoxville as we close. Let's leave off here dietary laws and circumcision. You might say to me, you know what, Ronnie? I know what you're talking about. My, my life was a mess. I was a wreck. If you'd, if you'd have known me before you met me, look, if you had known me, my life was a wreck. I drank too much, I was mean, I used women, I was hateful with my words, I was vile with my language, I lied, I stole. And there was nothing about me that was admirable. And I, I woke up one day and said, hey, this, this is no way to live. I cannot live that way. I need to get in church. And I did. I came to church and I've been coming ever since. And I've got friends who keep me accountable and I've got filters on my devices and I don't abuse alcohol anymore. And I've got my language under control. I'm not talking the way I used to talk. I don't interact the way I used to interact. Things are different now. I've got my kids. I've got my family. I'm reading the Bible all the time. Look here. You have told me nothing that would settle the question of whose you are. Nothing. If, if that is all there is to your story, you are not free. You are bound. That will not save you. Like circumcision will not save you, your clean living will not save you. You need Christ. You flee to Christ, he will 
receive you. Do you know that your modesty will sink you if you trust in it? Do you know that your familiarity with the creeds and confessions and catechesis, as valuable as that is, that will not shield you from judgment? Do you know that your righteousness will damn you if you make it your refuge? But Christ receives sinners. Christ receives sinners. So you come with your sin and you come with all your filthy righteousness. You sang it, I sang it. Well, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make, what can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my hope and peace. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And this is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Your righteousness will sink you. But Jesus can hold you to flee to him. Father, right there we rest our hopes. Father, we, we pray for a an ever-increasing, ever-deepening allegiance to the truth of the gospel. I pray that would be so large that it would overshadow everything else in our lives. Father, I pray that we would be diligent to maintain unity around this whole theme of gospel agreement. May we be clear on the truth of it. Maybe be clear on recognizing error wherever we see it. Father, I pray that we'd be clear in our, in our mission to proclaim it. And may we reflect our own experience of the gospel, having received generously. Help us to be generous in the care for those around us. So help us to understand this clearly, live it out. And Father, for the sake of your name, would you save outsiders? Would you save outsiders? Bring them in. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.